You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Today, we are joined once again by my whitetail brother, Tom Peplinski, and uh, we're going to recap our ruts so far. Right? We're going to talk a little bit about what we saw, what we witnessed, what we experienced out in the Iowa countryside, and we're also going to talk about one big contributing factor to our rut hunts, and that is the amount of standing grain still in the state uh, we've we've had one of those years where the the standing crops have really dictated the deer movement on uh, the farms that I know I hunt and the farms that Tom hunts and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today uh, I'm curious to know what your guys's take on the standing crop scenario was uh, throughout the state I know at one point, only 43% of the standing grain had been harvested out of the state, and that was based off of a, uh, or a an agricultural radio show that I listened to every once in a while, and uh, it made it seem like it, it was going slow, and then we had some snow and some rain, and that even slowed it down a little bit more. So that's what we're going to talk about today, but before we get into the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about... Bondurant Custom Furniture, right? If you guys haven't had the opportunity to go to the website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com, please go do that. These guys make some really awesome custom furniture. Uh, one, one of their specialties is taking old whiskey barrels and refurbishing them into furniture or coffee tables or clocks or artwork. Uh, and I think the best way to really get an idea of what it is these guys do is to go to BondurantCustomFurniture.com and uh, take a look at their gallery on their website. And that's going to show you what these guys do, what they're capable of. And I'm sure if you ask them or have an idea about a custom piece that uh, you'd like to put in your home, uh, they would be up for at least hearing you out and uh, taking a stab at it. So uh, BondurantCustomFurniture.com in Bondurant, Iowa. Uh, go check it out. And uh, with all that said now, let's get into today's Rut Recap Podcast with Tom Peplinski. All right. Uh, it is the towards the end of the rut here in Iowa, and uh, I got Tom Peplinski on the phone with me right now. And it's been a while since we've talked, man. How you doing? Good, Dan. Good morning to you. I'm doing great. How about you? Oh, I'm pretty happy, man. I uh, I walked away with uh, a really good deer out of the rut, and I uh, uh, got some meat in the freezer. So there's two wins for me. I, and I tell you what, even though it was a little cold during the Iowa rut this year, I really enjoyed myself. I had an absolute blast. 
How about yourself? Good. I saw a picture of your deer too. That was a really nice buck. It's a nice picture too. I'm always glad when I see guys smiling instead of trying to look like badass. Yeah, I can't stand it when these guys like pose behind a deer and they're looking trying to look like some big tough guy. It just drives me nuts. So <laughs> I, I yeah, can't I, help but smile. I'm, well, exactly. I mean, if you're not going to smile after you do something like that, then why'd you do it? You know, right. let it go. Let somebody else shoot it. I guess you know. <laughs> No, it's Absolutely. been a, it's been a good year. It's been, it's been kind of a frustrating, uh, long, uh, I don't know what you want to say. Complicated year. Yeah. Had some things go wrong. Um, I did get a deer on the 15th, a, a really big bodied old deer. Um, so I'm real happy about that. My wife was actually sitting in the stand with me when we got it. So that's, a, that's a first for us. Well, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was. I think we're going to get, get into it, but it was a frustrating year. A lot of crops. I mean, I, we still got thousands of acres of standing beans and corn around both of my farms. And it's just been kind of one of those years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's a good transition because I think as far as Iowa is concerned, when I, the first week of the rut, Iowa had only harvested, I think 43% of the soybeans and uh corn which left a lot of grain still in the fields and and um let me first just i know it impacted how the deer were moving on my property how did it it affect how the deer were moving on your property a lot because i mean we've talked before how i like to set up these um bed to feed transition areas and i really try to key in on those and then once the fall harvest takes place, then my food plots really kick in. So, you know, anybody that's listened to me before, that's how I hunt. That's, I love to put in food plots and, um, habitat management and stuff. And in a year where there's thousands of acres of corn still standing and beans, um, my food plots are no more attractive than, you know, the same, the same rogue crops that are standing everywhere. So, and I, and I still don't have I still don't have really good bed to feed patterns um, on any, on anything that I hunt. And it's because there's just so much stuff still standing. It's starting to come off now, but yesterday we got some rain. So that'll yep. that on hold for a little bit again. Yeah. I guess the only, the only silver lining is my late season plots were like late muzzleloader. I'm, there's no doubt in my mind now that they'll still be there, you know, yeah. that the pressure the pressure from the deer won't have consumed everything, but right. yeah, that, it was, it was frustrating from their, that standpoint. Yeah. That's if they get their crops out by the time late season comes and goes, you know what yeah, I mean? And there's a chance of that. I mean, if we keep raining, if it keeps raining, that'll, that'll definitely dampen, dampen that too, because a you know, two acre or three acre standing soybean plot surrounded by thousands of acres of corn and beans is really no more attractive. And that's what made fall so hard is everything's spread out. Yeah. You know, none of the deer got out of these cornfields or these fence rows and they were able to bed, you know, pretty much anywhere they wanted. And it was really, really a spread out type of deal. Hard to narrow it down. Yeah. So did you change up your strategy at all uh, to try to, uh, did, I mean, did you stick with your same strategy or did you have to alter it at all to try to, I guess, hunt more of where the deer had altered their movement to? Well, I, I had to mix it up. I think one other time we were talking about uh, calling and rattling and stuff like that. And I, and I had told you that if I find myself with a grunt call and 
antlers and stuff like that. And in, in this case, this year, a decoy that that means I've done something wrong or haven't done my homework. And I found myself kind of in what I would consider that trap this year. And it was simply because the travel routes that I had watched and created myself through fence jumps and stuff just weren't as nearly as effective this year because of the deer being so spread out. Yeah. And I got kind of a, if you indulge me for a couple of minutes, I got kind of a funny story about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on my, on my farm right here where I live, there was several really nice bucks and one that I had called Scarback, and I was chasing early on when I had a decent bed to feed pattern, even though all the crops were still standing, they were still on, on green. So I was chasing these deer and I was just kind of waiting for this one spot. It's a ditch crossing. So on my farm, if you can just imagine this steep ditch gully kind of runs through half of it. And it's not that deer can't cross it anywhere, but they just don't like to. So there's this one spot where it kind of widens out and the banks kind of flatten down a little bit. And every year it's, it's a go-to spot where just about, I don't want to say guaranteed, but it's one of them spots where if you just kind of let it soak and don't hunt it and wait for the right wind and get in there at the right time, it's just, you know, you sit it a couple times and, and something's going to happen. I had sat that spot probably three, four times with nothing, nothing coming through that ditch opening. Uh, there was a couple times deer were actually getting downwind of me because they were completely avoiding that area and they were walking clear around the ditch. And the whole time I'm shaking my head, you know, what am I doing wrong? Am I, are they busting me when I pick up my binoculars and I can't figure out it's driving me nuts. And I'm not a big fan of walkabouts. I don't like to get down after a morning hunt and start bumbling around and looking and seeing what's going on. But on this one morning, a really nice buck was walking about three, 400 yards away on a fence line. And it came right down off of a, some cut beans and it was going to cross this ditch crossing. So I told myself, I'm not going to pick up binoculars. I'm not even going to move. I'm just going to let the deer get in the ditch. I'll grab my bow. That way I'm not going to mess anything up. It was getting frustrating for me. He gets to the ditch and gets down, you know, he's going down in it. So I kind of turned to grab my bow. And the next thing I know, he's going right back out where he came from. Like, almost like I'm sitting down in there and he's trotting away, hits that same fence line, three, 400 yards away, never stops running and he's gone. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Is the wind swirling? Are they busting me? So I, I immediately got down. This is a morning hunt. And I walked to where this trail should be. And there's a faint sign of where the trail is. And normally by this time of year, which is like early November, it's pounded. It's like a cow path. And you can tell there's a trail there, but it's not much. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep going. And I go to where this ditch crossing is, which is probably 60, 70, 80 yards from the stand. Same thing. There's nothing much there. And I kind of go down in the ditch. And here, uh, happy birthday metallic helium balloon had landed and and got caught up right on like some briars right where that ditch crossing is and it's flopping around and blowing around and that ruined <laughs> that oh, i don't know Lord. if i had four four or five sits in that stand and it ruined that entire draw ruined that entire ditch just because of that floppy metallic helium balloon it was, oh. it's the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. And how, how would any hunter 
know that unless yeah. you, you know unless you walk all of your spots all the time and i couldn't see that from the stand because where it landed it was down in the ditch right so that was a and big what, red flag to the deer saying stay away well it's when i watched that buck and i didn't i hadn't i didn't recognize that buck it wasn't scarback the one i was chasing it wasn't one of the other deer i had on camera i didn't pick up binoculars so i'm like i'm not blowing this i'm gonna just let it play out so when it took off, I'm thinking the only reason why it even went down in there is probably because it was a deer that was a little bit out of its normal routine or normal area because none of the other deer that I had seen that I had been chasing that fall would even go near that because they probably already saw it and, and had spooked and got out of there. So needless to say, I go down, I grab the balloon, I, I get it out of there, but there's no signs that the deer are using that ditch crossing yet. So that, that one Johnny lets his balloon go <laughs> and it lands in my ditch crossing, ruin that spot for probably, probably the season. Right. Right. It's just crazy. It's crazy how something like that can happen. Right. And at the same time, how it potentially has altered it the entire year, even though it's gone now, they still must have the, uh, the foresight or whatever to look at you know, say, ah, well, we had something a little suspicious over here. We're not going to cross it in that part of the ditch anymore. Exactly. Yeah, they completely avoided that area. So then that stand, to me, is deemed useless, at least. You know, I don't know when they're going to – I'm sure eventually they're going to start using that crossing again because it's a, it's a crazy good spot, and the deer want to naturally cross, cross there. Right. But I've seen no signs of it yet, so I'm, you know, I probably won't sit that spot this year and i'm sure by next year they'll use it again but in the process how many deer got downwind in me and how many deer did i bumble and it's just it it ruined what should have been probably one of my best stands and it ruined it and possibly ruined that whole part of the farm because of all the deer that had busted me right man that's nuts that is nuts that sucks too like something that simple right ruins everything for that particular stand uh for uh, an entire year and it's completely out of your control yeah and i and honestly when i found it initially i was upset but then you just got something like that you just gotta laugh you just yeah. gotta say really right, right. <laughs> this is what did it <laughs> right that's a fact man um so let's kind of other than the crops being in which i feel you know played a huge impact was there anything else that made this rut kind of strange or awkward or not typical to your farm i no i don't i don't think so um i think it kind of if it followed that same that same type pattern i think uh right behind the house where I did quite a bit of hunting this year. From what I could tell, from what I observed, it looked like the first doe or two that came in the heat was probably around that October 20th, 21st time frame, which to me is not not at all bizarre. And I saw a really good spike in activities right around that time frame. Uh, then it seemed like it kind of cooled off and then, and then slowly ramped up. Uh, but to me, it was really hit and miss, and it's because the the doe family groups were so spread out yeah. that there was no way of me um, narrowing down any of that type of movement. You know, yeah. I just, they were just so spread out. But as far as the rut, to me, it seemed like it followed a typical, typical year for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that I noticed too was, you know, obviously the crops, right? But the, the, the rut typically means chaos. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I, I feel that sp- certain bucks have a routine still in their core area. So they'll bounce to bedding area or, or to, to doe group and look for a hot doe. They'll find a hot doe. They'll run off with her, go wherever she goes, and then they'll breed her, they'll come off, and then they'll go back into that routine. And when you have all the standing crops and you have all the this big dispersal of these doe groups, they're gone for longer periods of time before they come back through that core area again to check bedding and check for does. So if the does are even there, I mean, I on my farm this year, I hardly saw any scrapes at all. I mean, I saw scrapes, but compared to other years when all the crops are, are out of the field by the first week of November, I'm saying there was way less sign, way less uh, scrapes and rubs, you know, to the point where like I'm a, I'm a mobile hunter, which means that I don't have the, you know, I don't have the opportunity to p- plant food plots. I bounce around a lot based off of the fresh sign based off of the, the the deer movement so there were days where i was just kind of scratching my head going now what the sign's not there i just have to basically go to these observation stands where i can see a long way knowing i'm probably not going to get an encounter that night and setting up for the next hunt and and just moving into an area based off of what i see from the stand and like you I did a little bit more calling than I normally do this year because I felt like in order to even get something into range, I had to, you know, I had to rattle. And when I rattled, it was just like a two-year-old prayed. I wasn't seeing, I mean, I saw a couple three-year-olds and a couple four-year-olds, but I bet you I saw 200. It felt like 200 anyway. It probably wasn't, but. Two-year-old prayed, man. I just saw so many two-year-olds this year, it wasn't even funny. See, I can just echo exactly everything you said. This You, you just said, I, yeah. I sat more observation sits this year, this fall. Yeah. And, and we're only, you know, just past mid-November than I probably ever have in my life. And it's right. number one reason is because I just could not narrow down. And, and, and honestly, my observation sits didn't really even narrow it down for me because I'm here. I'm watching, I'm watching thousands of acres and I'm purposely putting myself in a position, like you said, where I'm not going to get a shot at a deer. You know, my bow is with me. I'm going through the motions, but in reality, I'm not going to get a shot. So I'm sitting on the ground on a fence sign just so I can see. And it's completely random, haphazard, nothing I can take down. Just nothing. And to me, that was kind of frustrating, but at the same time, it was kind of exciting because it was, it was kind of like, oh boy, this is going to be a tough one. I got my work cut out for me. It's a challenge because it, it definitely wasn't easy. Yeah. And then, and then, so then it's the grunt calls out and the rattling antlers were always out and I didn't rattle, you know, a lot, but they were always with me. And I, I tried grunting a few times at different target deer that were not in range. It was not, was not successful bringing them in close range and typically that's not that's not a position i'm in i 
I take a lot of time and effort so that I don't have to do that. So that if I see a mature buck, yeah. it's going to be in range. And this year was just not like that at all. Yeah. I feel, I feel the same way. I think that if you have to call at a deer, it's almost like a secondary tactic. I would almost rather tear down my tree stand and move it 50 yards than try to, uh, and catch them another day, uh, than try to call them and educate them on where I'm at. Right. Because there's always that chance. They, they loop way down wind and they bust you as opposed to coming on a frozen rope right to you and you get a, you get a shot at you or you exactly. don't, or they yep. go all the way down and you don't even see them, but they bust you anyway. Yep, exactly. And then, especially on a deer that you've seen or have pictures of. So, you know, he's around and then you're just educating the heck out of him. It makes it just that much harder to kill. Yep. And then for me, the frustrating part was where do I move my stand? Because one, you know, I'll sit an observation stand one morning, there's activity along this fence line, uh, jumping this fence at a certain point the next morning, not even close. So, you know, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I, I can set up, in such and such tree, I can go in with a southwest wind, and I'll take advantage of this movement. And the next day, I'm looking where I would have went, and it would have been terrible. Every deer would have been downwind, so it was just, it was just completely sporadic. And I, I really bring that all back to all the standing, yeah, all the standing crops because deer were bedded. I, I observed deer bedded where, in a normal year, there's no business a deer's going to bed there, but they were because they're standing corn and there's a brushy fence line and there's a dozen deer bedded in that brushy fence line. Where in a normal year, that's maybe once in a while you'll see a deer there, but this year it was like a prime bedding area because that was their food source right next to them. These right. little family group. Right. So, man, yeah, it just made it just made it tough. You know, finally the rut kicks in. Uh, the oh, I would say the first week or excuse me, the, the second week probably for me, the, obviously there's breeding going on. The deer are all over the countryside, but I think as the crop started to come out a little bit more around like November 1st, when I started my rut vacation, I was the first night I saw real good movement. And then from there, it's like someone shut a light, you know, shut the lights off and there was no movement and I think as the crops started coming out on neighboring farms, that started to get them moving a little bit more. They didn't have that cover. They started moving back into the timbers and traveling. And it really wasn't until, I'm going to say, November 10th or 11th that I started seeing a true like a, a true rut, the chasing. Uh, and even though the chasing was done by three-year-olds, um, I did have a couple four-year-old sightings, but it wasn't until that second week in November that I would even, if I could go back in time, I probably wouldn't have even started hunting until November 7th or 8th this year. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. My, I want to say mine was similar but different because I had pretty good activity already, like I said, around October 20, 21st, but it was a good day, three terrible days. Like where I would actually get skunked, like three out of six hits or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. And then a and then a phenomenal day, and then two two days or nothing, and then so it was like, and some of the times it was five days in between, you know, just just terrible activity, and then all of a sudden you'd have a really good day, and it was almost it was almost like you almost had to get a little bit lucky, or a hot doe had either been through, 
that area recently, or there actually was one there, and it was just so hit and miss and up and down, and and that ultimately led to how I kind of put an idea together on how to get a deer within range because nothing I had seen mature bucks several times. I want to say five, six times I had mature bucks that I'm like, okay, I'd kill that deer and just nothing in range. And I just could not figure out how to do it Yeah. with yeah. my standard go-to practice of either observing and setting up on them or, a, you know, a bed to feed type thing. None of that was working for me. So, right. right. Yeah. So aside from a couple of those observation sets, I just kind of fell into a routine of going to historically good deer movement spots on the farm and just rotating through those stand sets. And eventually it paid off by going to one of the best bedding areas on the farm and having the, the buck that I shot, uh, you know, come through and, uh, you know, he was, he, he went into the, he was cruising in, bumped some does and, you know, unfortunately for him, he stopped 32 yards broadside from me and I took the shot and uh, found him 20 yards later. So, uh, I had, you know, I, I felt like that routine of me going through where the deer in just a matter of time until I connect, you know, to connect with one of the good spots, a deer's got to come through there at some point. And it's almost like luck, right? It's like rolling the dice. You, you're going to play the game. You're going to lose more than you win, but when you win, you know, when you win they lose permanently you know what i mean so it it just kind of it just kind of all came together and, and i got uh you know i was successful and i've already talked about that on another podcast but you were successful on what would have been friday the 15th it was the 15th yeah 15th okay so let's uh let's walk through that harvest because i think that's going to tell uh there's a lot of people out there who are having the same problems as us. And I know there's still some time, uh, left in this rut, you know, to be honest with you, I I feel like a lot of these big, the big boys start getting on their feet right about now. And they turn into that zombie buck, right. That just, he's looking for that last doe right now on his feet, daylight, potentially all day long. And I think, uh, with all the crops that we're in, what did you start doing? Um, or, was this a, a pure luck scenario where you got an encounter with this deer? So this is, uh, this is like a hundred percent. I want to say not desperation, but I can't get the deer in close. I'm seeing mature bucks. There's no pattern. I don't want to say frustrated, but take a step back and, and Tom, what are you doing? That's not working this year. You know, these bed to feed patterns aren't working. These, this uh, ditch crossing is is blown. Um, your fence crossings are completely, totally hit and miss because the deer are spread out. But yet you're seeing mature bucks. So what can you do? So I actually went into a spot that I had sat probably seven or eight times already. I killed a couple of those there. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be my number one choice for a November 15th spot, but it's a spot where I set up on it and I can see a lot of ground and a lot of deer that would come out, let's say a mature buck at 300 yards is going to see my area because it's on a field edge and that actually, it was actually cut beans at the time. And I used a decoy and there just happened to be two stands in that tree. My wife, it was a nicer day. It was warm that day. My wife says, I want to go with and sit. And I'm like, perfect. 
So we hauled a buck decoy in, and I had a mock scrape down in front of me, and I put the buck decoy right in the mock scrape. And my thought process is simply, if I can get a buck, a mature buck, with a doe or without a doe, and get him to see that decoy, I think he'll come in. I think it's the time of year where they're ornery. They don't have a lot of tolerance for other bucks. And if I can just get him to see that decoy. So we had seen probably five or six little bucks that evening already and a bunch of does all spread out. So we're, we're watching hundreds of acres with our binoculars and stuff. That's, that's the type of spot we can just see a long ways. And I see this mature buck coming out of what is traditionally a bedding area behind my house. And it was actually a buck that I saw the morning of the 15th go into that bedding area, which is another, another kind of thing that I said to myself, if I can get that buck coming out of his bedding area to see this decoy, then I don't have to be in the perfect spot because hopefully that'll bring him in. Right. So he comes out of his bedding area. He's in some bottom ground. He doesn't see the decoy. He makes a scrape and he drops right into this, this thick brushy bottom ground. And in my mind, I'm thinking you can't see the decoy. He didn't, and I didn't run at him or didn't rattle, rattle, which would have maybe made him look in our direction, but I didn't. And it was right around that same time. My wife said, there's another big buck in there. She said, I can see him but it's so thick and briary and grass. She said, I can only see him like when he turns his head and a light kind of hits him the right way. So 10 minutes goes by and he pops back out. The, the original, the original buck that I saw bed behind my house. And this time he comes out and right when he comes out, he sees the decoy and I can just tell because he like lifts his head and he's looking right at it. And for the next 10 minutes, he goes nuts scraping and rubbing and pawing the ground. And I actually think we can hear him like snort wheezing over there. And he's probably 200 yards, maybe 150 yards, but he's, he's pissed, but he hasn't committed to coming in yet. And after about 10 minutes, he stops and he stares and he, and then he commits. So I'm telling my wife, don't move. (laughs) because We're right in the open. And she's telling me, you know, be quiet. I'm not moving. You don't move. (laughs) Right. Right. And this buck is coming right in on a line to this decoy. I already had my bow in my hand. I never even stood up. I just, I just stayed seeing, uh, sitting down in my stand. And if you've ever seen it, it's the classic ears back, hair up, kind of like that walking sideways type deal. Starts posturing. Yep, posturing up, and he turns perfect broadside, and and that was the end of it. But so the strategy for me was, you know, again, if I'm rattling, if I'm calling, and in this case a decoy, that means something's not going right. And this year for me, it was the deer were so spread out that I'm really careful and cautious about letting deer get downwind to me. So I'm playing these edges. So I'm not really in where the deer are, but this was a way for me to be on an edge deer blowing out over a cow pasture that the deer aren't using. And the strategy worked, you know, a mature buck sees the decoy, doesn't like it and comes in. And that's, that's how I, that's the second buck I got using the decoy. And the first was probably 10 years ago. Same exact scenario. Wow. Crops on, crops on the ground, like crazy deer all spread out. And that was my method 10 years ago. And it worked again. And in fact, my memory going back, I'm like, how oh, dang it. I wonder if I could do the same thing I did 10 years ago. Cause it was the same type of fall. Yeah. And it worked yeah. and it worked again twice. So that's one thing I've never been successful with is decoying. I've tried it a couple times. 
and it just never paid out. The only thing I would get in was, you know, the two-year-olds that would come to investigate. They're not looking for a fight. They're just looking for, uh, you know, just to check it out, and then they go away. Uh, then I've maybe I've seen mature bucks, but they never, like you said, they never committed to coming in to that. So I just probably didn't catch them uh, when they were pissed off or, or whatever. The, the timing is probably real important when it comes to, uh, you know, using a decoy. But that's one thing I've never been successful with. But I can see how it would work in a scenario like this year. Well, the part of it for me was I saw this buck in the morning and it was the same thing. He, he came in, he worked this draw and then he cut, he cut North and he was out of range. Just like all the other counters I had, I never spooked him. I didn't grunt or rattle at him. I didn't do anything. I just watched him and I let him go. He hit a fence line, walked back to the East. And I'm like, I know exactly where he's going. Cause he, he wasn't the seven o'clock in the morning, nose to the ground, you know, occasional grunt cruising he was you could tell he was he was ready to lay down for the day so even though it's november 15th i'm like if he's gonna go lay down for the day number one i have no idea where when he gets up where he's gonna go because i that part of the my hunting strategy i've given up on this year i'm lost i don't i don't know what they're doing and part of it is that damn balloon the second the second part of of my thought is I don't need to set up where he's going to go. I just need him to see that decoy going back 10 years. And if he sees that decoy, he's a mature buck. He doesn't have a doe. If he thinks that that other buck is anywhere near, or there's a doe, if I can just get him to commit, I think this, this time of year, you know, again, this is not October 25th type of stuff. I think he's going to be ornery enough and mature enough where he's going to say, I'm not, I'm not going to allow this, two or three year old buck. Cause that's my decoy kind of resembles a two or three year old buck right. to stand here in a scrape. And, you know, and I don't know how deer think, but right. in my mind, that's, that's what I want this deer to, to go through in his mind. And it worked. So, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of funny. I had a, uh, I had a three-year-old in front of me this year and she, or this three-year-old had junk, like a junk rack. I mean, I mean, it was like, he was an eight pointer, probably 150 or 115 inches. And then this like 125 inch two-year-old 10 pointer comes in, you know, really good genetics comes in. And it's just funny for me to watch this animal, just this three-year-old just completely bully this other buck snort wheezed at him. And this was all like 20 yards from my stand on that, that first November 1st, this was all going down, snort wheezed him, bullied him, pushed all these other deer out of the area, made that, made that bedding area his until another more dominant buck showed up. And there was no fighting. There was a lot of posturing, but it was all almost like these deer knew who was in charge of the area. And there was a, mm -hmm. a hierarchy and they all knew each other. And they're like, okay, we've already fought maybe once this year. And this buck comes, you know, another buck comes in and they all kind of calm down. They stop fighting. And this, I, I think he was a four-year-old. He didn't come into shooting range. I couldn't get a real good look at him, but he had a darker coat. Um, he was a nine-pointer. He had It was a bigger rack, so I'm assuming there was a little bit more age with him. And he came in and everything just kind of calmed down. They all, all the attention went to him. 
he came in and then he walked away and they all came, and they all went with him another another like i guess uh, observation that lets you know that the rut may not be too terribly close or there's no hot does in the area yet because there were still these groups of bucks hanging hanging around each other another point of interest that i that i did kind of note and this and this is not unusual i don't think but from about that October 20, 20th or 21st, a lot of the year and a half and two and a half and three and a half that I saw, especially year and two, never had those, never once. It's not that they didn't chase them, but they were never following a hot doe, ever. Yeah. But every time I saw a mature buck, until that night I killed, they were with a, they were with a doe. Yeah. So it's like those mature bucks, when a doe came in the heat, they had one. And the twos and the threes and the years were running around frantically trying to get anything that was available that was not already basically picked up by a mature buck. Yeah. And it's not the first time I've seen that, which when I, that's the other reason why, okay, I'm calling and I'm rattling or I'm, I'm doing some of these things. I'm thinking that's a waste because there's no way you're going to grunt in or rattle in a, a buck, especially when you're not, you can't see or whatever. If he already has a hot dole. I just, I guess I just don't see it happening. There'd be no reason for him to do that. Right. Um, so that was the other reason for, you know, the reason for deploying the decoy. I'm thinking, well, he might come in on a decoy, especially if that doe is anywhere near because he's not going to tolerate that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It worked out this year. You know, I might try it again and it might not work out, but this year it paid off. But I, I did think that that was kind of, uh, kind of an observation that, the deer that I were seeing that were four and five and six years old, they had does or maybe they were in between does. I think I did see one buck that I think was in between does, but some of these other bucks, they had does already. Yeah. And these, it's almost like this elk hunt you're on, or you see on TV where it's like the one big bull has three or four does and these other ones are all the satellites. Yeah. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that the bigger mature bucks had three does, but when they had the one that would, that was a spike day where i would see really good activity i'd be seeing four or five bucks on that one sit and all these other deer were just chasing around because the scent was in the air but they didn't really have they didn't have nothing yeah it was the one dominant buck that i saw that had the doe yeah yeah makes a lot of sense makes a lot of sense all right so you're a landowner and you hunt late season muzzleloaders so that means you got two tags left um my first question is have they started getting more crops out of the field? I know you got a little rain. We got a little rain here in Iowa um, the past week. Have have they started pulling some of that grain out, and is it going to let some of your property get back to normal? Uh, so at home here, no. Some of the beans are off, but there's still thousands of acres of corn. Um, my farm in Decatur County, yes. that Most of that stuff is either gone or in the process of being gone and in that farm i've already i can already tell the difference right that the deer this deer are starting to use more of a a bed to feed pattern but not quite yet i and that's the other thing is i don't i don't know that we're quite really back to a bed feed type pattern yeah um if i look if i look at my notes from previous years it doesn't seem like that really kind of kicks in until the later part of november right which to me is the next really really good time to take a, a good buck is the later parts of november and even early december because they're still ready to breed 
there's still some does and there's actually some fawns that might be coming in the heat, but it's a lot easier to pattern because the does and the doe family groups that have been participating in the rut and they're already bred, they're back on a bed to feed pattern. So they're going to be coming out in groups if, if the crops are off more specifically and more narrowed down. So it's easier to hunt and any mature buck that's in the area that might want to come out and feed is still going to come out, run around, check every doe that's in the area before he settles down and grabs a bite to eat. And it's a really, really good time in my opinion to, to get another buck during the bow season, which yeah. is as a landowner, that's my second tag I actually got for the bow season. So I don't plan on shotgun hunting this year and I'm just gonna, I'm still, I'm still hard at it for the bow season. See what happens between now and the sixth. Yeah. So are you planning on kind of doing a save your tag for one of these big boys or you, you looking for another kind of, uh, mature buck? If it's, if it's mature to me, that is a big boy. I don't. I'm not, I'm not going to lie and say two five-year-olds walk out and one's 200 inches and one's 130. I don't prefer to shoot the 200 inch. I'm not going to lie and say that, but if 130 inch five-year-old walks out tonight, I'm going to shoot it. I'm not about, I'm not about, to me, that is a big boy. I don't, the score of a deer is nice and who doesn't want to have a big set of antlers and stuff. So I'm not one of those guys that wouldn't prefer that, but it's a, if I get another shot at a mature buck, it's going to be in a world of hurt. So yeah. that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh quick question. Then I, I want to talk about your property uh, as a whole here. You're not shotgun hunting this year. Uh, and obviously shot shotgun hunters are going to have the same problem that we had when it comes to, uh, you know, trying to get deer, even though there's a lot of standing crops, unless they're pushing standing cornfields. And we're just walking blindly through a standing cornfield to get all these deer uh, into a a funnel or something where they can shoot them. Shotgun hunters are going to have the same problems that we are. With you laying off shotgun season, do you feel like your farm is going to absorb some of that uh, from surrounding pressure? Have you seen that in the past? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and that'll happen anytime. Even there's, there's times where I'll say, you know what, the winds are swirling. It's raining. I got stuff to do and I, and I call it soaking, but I'll, I'll just say, you know what? I'm going to take the next two days off or three days off. Even if it's, you know, November 1st through the third, which you might say this guy's nuts, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to just let that farm soak. I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit on my neighbor's farm that gave me permission or whatever. And I'm just going to let that farm soak because just allowing that to calm down and no scent, no bumping deer, even though I try to do the best I can, you know, going in and out, you're bumping some buck fawn that got displaced or you just, it always happens. And I think that if you just kind of, if you have the ability to do that, if you're now if you're a weekend hunter, then, and I used to be a weekend hunter, I'd never do that. I'm going to hunt every chance I can. Right. But now that I can hunt pretty much the whole season, I'll let a farm soak for two or three days or longer if I can. Because I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to let it go. I'm looking at the forecast. We've got some days coming up where it's not raining, et cetera. Then I'll hit back at it in three days or I'll move to a different farm or I'll jump back and forth. So the the reason for the shotgun is just because I like bow hunting. Yeah. I mean, that's that's ultimately the reason. So I have the, the landowner tag. I shot my deer on the 15th. I have a landowner tag. 
I just liked bow hunting. So that's what I bought my landowner tag on. And then, uh, I could shotgun hunt, but then I wouldn't be able to muzzleloader hunt. And I prefer to muzzleloader hunt over the shotgun season. So that's, that's really the, the reason behind it. But the, the side benefit of that is absolutely those farms will be sitting there idle. If you want to call it that, as far as hunting pressure for three weeks, and that'll absolutely help my shotgun season. It'll help potentially two and three year old bucks that maybe would get shot if they're bedded on my property. Now they're not going to get shot. So there's just a whole bunch of different benefits for sitting out that shotgun season. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, there comes a point for me where like, okay, the rut standing corn, I get pissed, right? Standing crops, I get pissed. Now there comes this, this flip where I've, I've harvested my buck. Now I like standing crops because <laughs> what that does is that allows me an awesome food source for late season hunting. And, you know, because I don't have the, I don't have the opportunity like some people do to do the food, the food plots, right? I don't own my property. I can't manipulate it. So now I like these standing crop fields because it's almost like just a magnet if you can find the right terrain features that lead into them and absolutely yep and so so what i do now is now i'm praying so as soon as the shot i'm (laughs) this is selfish but i'm praying for shitty weather during the shotgun season and that just keeps people out of the timber right that my farm doesn't get the pressure on it and then i'm praying for about a foot of snow and with the standing corn and the standing beans in the area, it just becomes a magnet. And when you can get that mixed with a little bit of cold weather, they're not, they're not going to eat the acorns because they're not going to waste their time digging through the, uh, the snow to find the acorns. They're going right to the standing crop fields. And if I can, I've never had the opportunity to kill a buck late season and this year i really want to try for about a week uh hopefully the weather lines up and you get that uh you get that really cold nasty weather that gets them on their feet early gets them in daylight you know i I probably won't hunt the field edge too much i'll go into the terrain features into the uh the staging areas inside the timber and hopefully they work their way through at last light and uh, i get a crack at uh you know, these deer, once the, uh, you know, once the, the weather turns and the temperatures drop, hopefully. So that's, that's when I start to like the standing crops. So when you say late season, you're talking muzzleloader too then, right? Well, I'll use my bow. Uh, I don't, I don't muzzleloader hunt. I'll use my, uh, I think the rule in Iowa is I'll buy a muzzleloader tag, but you can use a bow for that tag. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But that's the season you're talking about. Yep. Yep. That once, once shotgun season's over that, that late, that late season yeah. when the yep. muzzleloader season starts. So, yep. I believe it starts the 23rd this year, 20, 23rd of December. That's... Yeah. I yeah. believe that's when it starts. Yep. That should be the, that shotgun season should be done by then. Right. Yes. Yep. The last day is the 22nd and then the late season, uh, muzzleloader and archery opens, opens back up the 23rd. I believe yep. those are the dates. Yep. So I'll, I guess if you, I'll go get another tag and depending on what my trail cameras are showing, I probably won't, I'll probably go check the, te- the cameras first, see what they have to say. And then that'll dictate whether or not I buy a tag. Okay. 
So yeah, we will see. No, we'll we see. We should have a we should have a good year. Um, like I said, I don't I don't know that I've ever seen too much where crops are on at Christmas time. I'm not saying they can't be, but usually by then, even if it's a wet year, it's freezing up and you know the stuff is is just gone. It's coming out. Yeah, but for me. Standing, like you said, it makes it difficult for the archery, but for the late season, the longer the corn and the beans stay on, I actually think it wasn't just hard for me, it was harder for everybody else too. So there's probably more deer available, there's more bucks that I'd want to shoot that are available, and the crops that I planted in my food plots are still well supplied, so I should have a really good muzzle order. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom, uh, good luck. Uh, it's always nice when you when you got the opportunity to go harvest a couple more deer, especially uh, as a landowner. S- my goal in life is to own enough land to where I can get that second tag and at least give it a try uh, late late season or hell, even being able to shoot two bucks in the rut during the rut. You yep. know what I mean? And um, yep, absolutely. Uh, that was been always it's always been my dream. So <laughs> yep, now I'm here. Yeah. Well. Uh, Good luck the rest of the season. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you when we talk to you, man. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, good chatting with you again. And there you have it. Huge shout-out to Tom. Always a pleasure talking with him. Be sure to check out BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Be sure to follow along. On Facebook, Iowa Sportsman on Facebook. And then also be sure to visit the Iowa Sportsman website. And it's simple, iowasportsman.com. And there you have the ability to click on a button and subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman magazine. So now you're getting the magazine. You're getting the content off the website. And you have the podcast here. Tons of great information relating to Iowa. The principles, the the information could also be used in other states, other surrounding states as well. So just really good content overall. Uh, I, I know I love talking uh, to the people and interviewing them on the, on these episodes. Uh, I have a blast doing it. I'm an outdoorsman. Uh, hopefully your rut is still shaking and you still have time to get out there before uh, shotgun season starts. Or maybe you're waiting for shotgun season and uh, you're going to get out then as well. So be safe. Have a great one. Get somebody new outside, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.